Hi there. This is Preston, and I have a brief editor's note before we start the episode. This interview with Nick was scheduled to have been episode number 251, as we mentioned a few times in the episode. However, due to some issues with travel, the episode scheduled to be number 250 was delayed until next month. We do apologize for that delay and us skipping one week, but we are excited to present to you the landmark 250th episode of the Fisheries Podcast. We hope that you enjoy it. Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on social media at Fisheries Pod. If you are the generous sort, you can be like Brian, Jody, Jerry, Garrett, Ben, Janet, and John, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod merch on our Teespring store if you feel inclined, so check it out. My name is Preston Chrisman, and I am looking forward to catching up with our guest today, Fisheries Podcast founder, Nick Kramer. Nick's curiosity of how to catch the big one in farm ponds of southeast Iowa eventually led him to Iowa State University, where he earned a Bachelor of Science in Animal Ecology in 2013. Nick then made his way down to Cape Girardeau to monitor pallid sturgeon on the mighty Mississippi, the result of a brief encounter with Dr. Quentin Phelps while doing work in Iowa. It took him a year, but Quentin eventually convinced Nick to get his master's degree, where he was lucky enough to be able to study paddlefish in the Mississippi River. Shortly after defending his thesis and graduating with a Master of Natural Science from Southeast Missouri State University, in 2016, Nick was hired by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks as a district fisheries biologist. He is in the midst of his seventh year with KDWP, now with the additional title of Regional Habitat Coordinator. Longtime listeners may be more familiar with Nick as the creator and original host of the Fisheries Podcast. We are going to catch up with Nick and everything that has been going on with him since he was last on the show as a guest, as well as discuss two major podcast milestones that have recently occurred. So welcome to the podcast, Nick. Yeah, thank you for thank you for having me and thank you for inviting me back onto the show, Preston. Yeah, you're welcome. Anytime. This episode is slated to be the 251st episode of the Fisheries Podcast, meaning listeners have already enjoyed episode number 250 that aired last week. Additionally, the five-year anniversary of the inaugural episode occurred this past August. I reached out to Nick and asked if he wanted to be a guest for this episode so that we can hear from him following these two landmark events. So, Nick, first off, I want to say congratulations on your creation achieving these two incredible milestones. Uh, thank you. Yes, uh, when I started the Fisheries Podcast, I wasn't sure how far it would it would go, and uh, since I didn't know anything about podcasts when I started podcasting i would listen to as nerdy as it sounds i would listen to podcasts about podcasting and a lot of those gurus kind of uh at least back then in 2018 would say uh most ep most podcasts don't make it past their seventh episode that's kind of the average drop-off period so i remember uh after i put out the eighth episode i guess i, I realized that i made it past the <laughs> i was on the descending limb of the curve and yeah <laughs> I, had, I had done something most podcasts hadn't but made it to eight up eight episodes and here we are at 251 uh, so blowing past that average yeah that's absolutely. still the average yeah uh, if you would uh, remind our longtime listeners and, and inform our new listeners about how how your idea for this podcast was kind of first hatched and so i was at the I, I attended the 2018 meeting of the American Fisheries Society in Atlantic City and showed up a day early to take a, a workshop 
That was taught by uh, Patrick Cooney, Aaron Bunch, and I guess it's been long enough. I forgot the third instructor. Uh, but it was all about uh, scientific communication uh, to some effect. And um, Patrick Cooney with the fisheries blog gave a portion about using social media. And in that workshop, uh, somebody else uh, asked, asked Patrick if the fisheries blog had ever considered doing a podcast. And up to that point, I was pretty young in my career, spending a lot of time driving around my district uh looking for stuff to listen to other than the the intermittent radio stations that would I would go in and out of their range. So I found podcasts, but I didn't hadn't found a fisheries podcast. So when this person asked Patrick uh if he was interested in doing a fisheries podcast, I guess that sparked it in my head that uh it's not just me that was interested in this uh that form of media and um maybe it'd be worth pursuing. So as I was walking back to my hotel after that workshop, I think I reserved the Twitter handles and maybe even ordered a microphone. I, I remember I did all that before I left Atlantic City. I had <laughs> okay. uh, might have even had the email address reserved. And, uh, so I dove in before I really knew what I was getting my hands into. But uh, yeah, I guess two weeks later, maybe one week later, the first episode went out. So it, it was all kind of a whirlwind at, at the beginning. But yeah, no kidding. Uh, learned as I went. Okay. Uh, does anything in particular stand out from your memory from those first few episodes? So, like I said, I, I listened to a bunch of, uh, I guess the, the timeline is really condensed looking back at it, but when I was looking into starting, yeah, I listened to a bunch of podcasts about podcasting and how to get started, and they all suggest uh, making sure you know what you want to talk about. So don't just start a podcast not knowing what you want to talk about. So I had a sheet where I wrote down, put the dates that I wanted each episode to come out and I put the people I wanted to uh, potentially talk to. And mm -hmm. Quentin Phelps was my advisor. So he's an easy first episode guest. And, and then after that, I guess I was surprised at the amount of people that were volunteering to be a guest on a show that they hadn't ever heard any episodes for before. So uh, people like Chris Vandergoot, who was a, a really great guest talking about the, uh, the telemetry stuff in the Great Lakes um, volunteered, reached out to me and volunteered to be a guest. And so some of those early guests that volunteered uh, to come on the show without ever hearing an episode, uh, I guess I was uh, really blown away and grateful for those people for stepping up. Okay. Uh, now that your hosting duties have been delegated to a group of co-hosts and you've taken a small step back, do you have any suggestions or requests on where you would like to see the podcast headed into the future? No, I I guess you know, and the other hosts know, and uh, people are pretty free to, to interview whoever they want. I don't have a uh, a set list or agenda of people they should interview. Occasionally, we have people uh, email us and, and ask to be on the show or uh, suggest guests, and I relay those messages on to the host, but really, it's it's up to each host to interview whoever they want, and it, it adds a unique uh, flavor to each guest and for each host. Yeah, people can somewhat expect, oh, this week the episodes will be somewhat marine-themed or um, more freshwater-themed one week. So, I don't know. I, I like it with the, the current way it is. I, I don't think I would prefer it any other way. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, you may have answered this already, but do you recall at what point you became comfortable with the idea and confident that the podcast had been built to last and would be here for as far into the future as we can conceivably see? When I became comfortable with the podcast was probably when I started bringing in other hosts. 
Uh, when I was doing it by myself the first year, um, I mean, I, every time I look back on it, I don't know how I did it because it was me lining up all the guests and recording all the episodes and doing the weekly, uh, weekly podcast. So I don't know how I did that. Uh, so bringing in the Julie and Brett, the first ones, and Sue Colvin, uh, having them help out starting in 2020 was 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 really great. Um, and then they stuck around, and then I guess it's I was still a little uncertain of of whether to continue after they left. But then once they decided to step away, and I put out another call, and uh, every time after that, I put out a call for hosts. I'm just we have more people interested than than we have weeks to fill episodes. So. I guess when I started putting out calls for other hosts and uh, having more people interested, then I could fill slots and I knew the podcast would keep going. Yeah. As someone who's only responsible for one episode a month, I, I can't imagine doing that every week. That must've been tough. Yeah. It's a, I, I guess I only missed one episode or one week in that time. And wow. I felt really guilty about it. <laughs> um, but uh, looking back, some of the episodes might've been a, a little, lower quality in my opinion because it, i was more concerned with making sure there was content instead of making sure there was good content so some weeks might just been me uh talking solo and um some of the early ones especially you can you can tell i was reading from a script and not very enthusiastic with my speech and it's kind of kind of tough to listen to but uh i got an episode out so that there was all i was concerned with at the time there you go all right, now we'll spend some more time catching up with you and your career. Um, so you've been part of an initiative by KDWP to potentially manage uh, common carp as trophy angling targets in recent years. So what are some of these the driving factors that led to to this project or initiative? I guess first I'll, I'll clarify, it's not an initiative by Wildlife and Parks, okay. more just a, a side project uh, from me. Okay. Um, uh, so we have... Uh, an agency Facebook page, but we also have a fisheries division Facebook page. And um, there's a group of anglers on there that are, are big carp anglers. It's the Kansas City Carp Anglers Group, among among others. And uh, they like to fill our comments with, uh, why aren't you managing for carp? And those sorts of comments, Whenever, especially when we post about stocking channel catfish. They're, uh, they're not too fond of our channel catfish stocking efforts. So there's one interaction where they, um, I guess I was, had a little free time. They asked why we don't manage common carp like we do bass or other sport fish. And uh, so I responded to the comment, asked how you would do that. And uh, they they replied back uh, a series of comments. And a recurring word in there was trophy carp. Uh, I was looking for some little side project. So I thought, well, maybe I'll look into this trophy carp thing and uh, to see if it could be done without messing with other fish. And yeah, uh, we did a survey. Um, just to, I mean, we knew we had we, these passionate anglers on Facebook, but how many people in Kansas really fish for common carp? And uh, so we sent a survey out and 33% of our uh, assumed, uh, we did a random sample of our licensed buyers, 2000 surveys went out and 33% of those responses uh, said they had intentionally fished for common carp at some point in their life. And when we split that out, it was predominantly rod and reel and bow fishing and since it was worded at some point in their life, we thought oh, a lot of these people are probably just um, fishing for them, collecting for bait, or when they're kids fishing with a piece of corn in the creek, that sort of thing. But um, when we opened up to social media, that was where we got a lot more of those um, more diehard, passionate people, especially when uh, we compared the in-state versus out-of-state. And 
So we we asked them how far they they currently drive and how far they how many fish they currently catch and um it was pretty consistent between the the bow fishing and rod and reel stuff. But then we also wanted to get to that question of uh trophy fish and because that was what we were most concerned with. So uh, how many what size of fish would they consider to be a trophy fish and when we asked them that it was 34 inches and the gears we use to sample fish in Kansas we don't see a lot of those 34 inch common carp uh, but we do have a few in our database so it's likely our sampling gear just doesn't uh, sample those big fish so we might have those trophy fish that they're after already in our Kansas lakes and then uh, when we when we asked them how far they were willing to travel to target these trophy common carp our in-state postcard responses, which were assumed to be representative of our angling public, uh, they said they were they weren't really willing to travel too much further than uh, thirty to fifty miles, which kind of lines up with our statewide Kansas licensed angler survey that we just did in twenty twenty, and so they might go just outside their county to to target trophy common carp, but not much further. But when we asked our um, our in-state social media or when we looked at our in-state social media responses, they were a little bit more uh, willing to travel. Uh, Rod and reel and bow fishers were willing to travel about 100 to 250 miles on average. And so you're getting uh, a good chunk across the state to travel to target trophy common carp. Yeah. And then when you looked at the out-of-state social media responses, uh, I mean, there are some people, outliers, that said they were willing to travel the the entire distance around the earth to to target trophy common carp. But when you look at that average, excluding the outliers, it was still 660 miles for out-of-state people to, to target trophy common carp. So uh, you could draw people to Kansas. If those numbers are true, you could draw people to Kansas from uh, Galveston, Texas, all the way up north of the Canadian border, Uh Rocky Mountains to Appalachia, uh, you mm-hmm. could draw a pretty wide swath of people to to Kansas if if uh, if those survey responses are indicative of uh, all carp anglers. So, I guess we did learn that it was a draw, just like they were commenting on our Facebook that uh, you could draw some people if you did open up these trophy common carp opportunities. So uh, that was the end of the survey, and then this whole time the survey was going on, I had started collecting. Um, data on on a few lakes just uh when i was at iowa state had a course with clay pierce uh, where he taught us how to use ecopath with ecosim a food web mass balance modeling software mm-hmm. and so i started collecting all the data i would need for that to uh, create an ecopath model and, and run some simulations for for two impoundments uh, to evaluate how different carp management strategies would affect other traditional sport fishes and so I spent all of 2022 collecting the data um, and a little bit of 2023 kind of shoring up some stuff that we didn't get in 2022 and built this model out uh, as best as I could with the data I had and used it to simulate um, first if you could grow a trophy common carp with uh, the removal of smaller carp uh, akin to a maximum length limit. Um, that didn't work. You didn't really, you didn't increase carp biomass at all. You, if you remove carp, you remove carp. And then uh, when I gave the presentation at 
at AFS in Grand Rapids this past August. I was pretty fresh off of building the model and had kind of scrambled to get the presentation done. <clears throat> so it wasn't where I wanted it to be. And I hadn't figured out how to, in the model, get Grow Trophy Carp yet. And uh, as I was sitting there uh, at the end of my presentation and fielding questions, uh, Dr. Robert Arlinghouse, uh, famous fishery scientist from, from Germany, uh, he raised his hand and said, we don't grow trophy common carp by removing carp. We, we grow them by feeding them. And it was a hand to the forehead moment. I thought, well, duh, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> if you, if you want to grow fish, you have to feed them. So went back to the, the, the model and incorporated fish feed into the diet. And sure enough, if you feed fish, you grow big fish and, um, looked at that as a function of, uh, pounds per acre per year. How many feet, how much feed you would need to grow trophy common carp. And, uh, it was a pretty substantial amount, about $300 per acre per year, uh, to get fish biomass to increase up to 400%. So, uh, it's a pretty big increase, but it's mm -hmm. going to be pretty expensive to, to grow those big fish. So, um, not ideal for, for larger impoundments, but it is possible on smaller impoundments. So I guess that was a pretty long-winded answer saying that uh, we had some some people wanting to know about Trophy Common Carp at the same time I was looking for a, a side project. And yeah. uh, I guess the wildlife, Kansas Wildlife and Parks let me play around with it. And uh, we ended up finding that it is possible. And when you when you do increase that common carp biomass, at least the, the way uh, my ecopath model is, the way my ecopath model is situated, you can grow a lot of big carp, but the other fish aren't really too impacted by it. There's there's not a huge impact of these larger fish hmm. swimming around the system. Okay. So is there is there any plans to implement any sort of this trophy management, or was that kind of like the theoretical um, you know modeling and such? Yeah, it's, there's there's no plans. Um, I mean, I would be open to trying it on a small impoundment. Yeah, uh, like a, a small city lake, uh, but where like maybe a five acre pond, it, it'd be more realistic. Um, but I guess I just haven't started jumping through those hoops to to see if that's something, uh, something that my supervisors are further up the ladder would would let me go after. And yeah. um, I guess looking at my projects on the horizon, there there's some other stuff that I think we're about to talk about that will be. Uh, be sucking up quite a bit of time so they might get pushed off for a year or two before i mess around with it more yeah okay um just curious with your with you initiating the survey and responding with some of the the carp anglers on social media was there any sort of positive feedback or or anything like that that was memorable um there were lots of positive feedback from the rod and reel carp anglers the their surveys since we after we waited a period i guess a we waited a good month or two after the postcards went out um, just to avoid any uh, avoid having the social media people bias it just so we could separate the postcards from the social media responses. And then once the social media posts went up, uh, the link to the survey was actually shared by the American Carp Association. I think that's the Carp Anglers of America. That's it. I knew I had all the letters, but I had them in the wrong <laughs> order. Carpanglers of America shared it to their email listserv and on their social media channels. And so that kind of inflated those pro carp anglers. But that was 
the goal of sharing it on social media was to hear from those more diehard uh, biased anglers. And we didn't have an equal sharing on the bow fishing side or any of those other gears that would target common carp. Um, but the, the people that commented for the, the diehard carp anglers that commented uh, were very excited about uh, states, a state agency actually looking into this or at least asking the questions sure. um, of, of those anglers. Okay. Where the bow fishermen were really against it. And uh, there's some pretty uh, comical comments from those folks. Gotcha. So a little bit of pushback, but uh, the trophy guys seem to be more in favor that at least, you know, you're looking into it. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, moving on. I'm pretty excited to hear about this next topic. Uh, you mentioned that you are in the process of potentially creating a greenhouse, I believe, to grow aquatic plants for habitat improvement projects. So tell me all about it. Yeah. So this is a this is a, a grant proposal that is currently, I believe, sitting somewhere in Washington, D.C., waiting for approval through the Friends of Reservoirs and the National Fish Habitat Partnership uh, to build a, a small greenhouse uh, at my office location for the purpose of, of raising and propagating aquatic native aquatic plants. This was kind of started by, uh, I collect sauger from my, my reservoir, and we hold them in this old water plant at the state park. Um, it's a 50-year-old building that used to hold the water treatment stuff for the state park. They, they now are on kind of a rural water system, so they don't use it. Uh, but it's a very corroded building, not really ideal for, for holding sauger one week out of the year. Um, and it's kind of a safety hazard. A lot of the support beams are rusted out. And you might be wondering why uh, I'm transitioning from a greenhouse to this, talking about this water plant building. But... Uh, since those support beams are rusted out, a uh, supervisor asked me and a former fish chief asked me uh, how we could get out of it before it falls down on top of us. And uh, I was trying to think of a building, a way we could build a building cheap. Um, and one of the cheapest ways to do that is to get money from other people, specifically grants. So I was had came across the Friends of Reservoirs grants previously and thought uh, that would be a good way. And so while the original intention was to to you get this multi-purpose building that would hold sauger one week out of the year and aquatic plants 51 weeks out of the year. Um, I guess the more I looked into it, the more excited I got about raising the plants and the less I thought about holding the sauger one week out of the year. So that was kind of the, the background on it. Um, in Kansas, we don't have a lot of plants or we don't have a strong history of, of plants. There's not a whole lot of native natural lakes in Kansas. So in the, the, ones we did have or the wetlands we had weren't really inventoried too much before we started messing around and draining the wetlands and, and building ponds. So there's really not too much of a history of what plants are and aren't native. So that's, that's uh, been a challenge, but uh, a lot of our lakes we have are either devoid of vegetation because of grass carp stocking or other herbivores or a, uh, they just, um, we don't have a lot of vegetation, especially in my district. And, uh, that was something that we thought we could move towards instead of, uh, throwing more, uh, artificial habitat into the lakes. Okay. Um, so you're, you're targeting lakes more than, than flowing systems. It sounds like. Yep. Yeah. So in Kansas, we, we, at least our fisheries division doesn't mess around with the flowing systems too much, um, because of the, the water rights laws that we have in Kansas, um, landowners own um, the streams. So 
we only own what's on state or federal property or only have access to what's on state or federal property. Um, the public can't access any uh, private waters without permission from landowners on both sides of the stream. And so uh, we, we mostly deal with, with Lentic systems. And so this is mostly going to be uh, the first target lake is a 535 acre uh, reservoir. Um, it, it doesn't have much, vegetation because it has low inflows and the city draws water from it. So throughout the summer, the water levels decrease. So uh, we're going to try planting plants at the level where water usually is around August or so in the hopes that when the water is higher up in, in April and May, that those plants are still in their submerged phase starting to grow. And then by July and August, when they're, um, when the, water could really benefit from their shading of their canopy that they'd be at the appropriate depth. Um, so there are some plants in the lake if the lake is ever held at that constant level, but we've been in a drought phase for the past few years and uh, haven't seen much aquatic plants at that lake. So uh, hoping that planting these plants a uh, deeper depth, they'd be more, more habitat available come August. Okay. Well, that sounds like a, an exciting potential project if, if the uh, grant funding comes through. Yeah, hope we're, we're pretty confident uh, it will come through. I guess nobody's told us to be start preparing otherwise or nobody's started to, to prepare us for a letdown. So uh, we're hoping that that money comes through and uh, it'll be a learning experience for sure. Um, not something I've really messed around with. We we did it a little bit last summer just to, to make sure we were confident enough to not not fumble the ball when we get it. Um, and so we we grew about 200 American pondweed plants last summer and some basically glorified raised garden beds. Uh, they're four by eight raised beds pretty much with lined with pond liner and we were able to grow uh, 200 American pondweed. Could have grown more, but we messed around with uh, trying to grow some arrowhead too. So we, we grew those starting in about June and uh, by August they were... Uh, choked up the the raised beds that we had them in and we had time to go go out and plant them so planting them in mid-august went back and looked down six weeks later and they had uh really taken off uh, in the lake that we transplanted them and almost expanding outside of the uh cage that we put them in the the fencing so uh pretty excited to go back and look at them this spring and see uh if they've expanded much outside of that that cage exclosure and um, look forward to, I guess, playing a whole lot more plants once we get this greenhouse built. Yeah. We'll have to have you back on in a year or two and, and see uh, how it goes. Yeah. Nope. We can do that. All right. Um, so kind of wrapping up the interview, you, you created the final five questions that we ask every guest, but I've added two of my own that I'm going to ask each guest at an interview. So first, if you hadn't gone into the fisheries field, what would you have been doing for your career? I had originally applied to Iowa State University uh, to just go into general engineering. I hadn't picked a subset. Um, I guess that was something I, I thought I wanted to do was to be an engineer. And I guess after eventually switching to animal ecology and that program, uh, I was on a floor with some engineers and I was quickly glad that I didn't go into that. Um, <laughs> I like math, but I don't like math that much. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and then 
finally, before we get into the final five questions, if you would just leave us with some good advice. This could be general life advice, or if you have some nugget that you think students or, or early career professionals need to hear, the floor is yours. I guess I'm probably guilty of not following this advice, and but I guess when you're when you're at meetings or uh, any sort of networking opportunities like that, um, I guess try to go outside your bubble of people that you're comfortable with and and talk to some some new folks or some people you don't know their names and um, I guess that's how you, that's how you expand your network is talking to those people you don't know and uh, who knows you might run into somebody that uh, would be able to help you with a project or um, give you some useful advice or uh, maybe share some data with you so uh, just I guess that would be my advice is to go outside your bubble. Yeah, that's that's great. All right, Nick, the tough part of the interview is over as we are down to the final five questions. This is a group of five questions that we ask each of the guests that come on the show. We always start simply with what is your favorite fish? Uh, I think my favorite fish would still be the American paddlefish. It's a fish I did my master's on and uh, a fish we're trying to get reintroduced uh, to Kansas. Uh, we have some stockings that have taken place in my reservoir and some other reservoirs across Kansas and uh, really excited to see if those take hold. Awesome. I was just got back from the Southern Division AFS meeting in Chattanooga, and the Grand Social was held at the Chattanooga Aquarium, and they had a few paddlefish, which I think was probably the first time I'd seen any. And they were they were so cool, uh, filter feeding there in the big aquarium. So, I and I believe that was your answer in some previous episodes too. Yeah, yeah there. I mean, once they're they're a hard fish to beat, especially if you've you've ever held them or worked with them. So what is your favorite memory from your career so far? Well, I guess the uh, guess I don't know if it's a favorite, but it's the one that popped in my head first. The 2022, when we were collecting all the, the data we needed for the, the carp stuff, we were doing a lot of mark recapture, channel catfish stuff throughout the summer to get population estimates and running a lot of hoop nets. And the lake I picked, I knew I had high abundance of channel catfish, but especially when we sample with our uh, gill nets, but hadn't ever ran hoop nets on the lake before and uh, the first time we did it, we we just caught we caught about a thousand fish between two tandems, and that took us the full work day. And the next month we go back to to run another sample, and we didn't we forgot to bring bait with us. And so the seasonal tried to talk me into just running uh, one tandem with the the leftover bait we had from the lake we pulled them from. And I thought, no, we need to run both the tandems. So we stopped at Walmart, got some more zote soap, and we ended up setting both tandems come back three days later to pull the nets and we had almost 2000 channel catfish in the tandems <laughs> and ended up working a, a, a pretty long day getting all these fish uh, tagged and, and back, back in the water. But uh, the whole hour car ride back to, to the office, the, the seasonal, uh, he wasn't too happy that I did end up <laughs> wanting to set that those two tandems, but uh, it was a memorable experience. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what is your dream job or dream location? Uh, I think I'm in it. Uh, I've been here now for for seven years. I'm I'm not too far from family up in Iowa. Um, I have Kansas Wildlife and Parks has allowed me to do a lot of different things. I mean, we talked about me looking into trophy common carp management, and yeah. I'm about to get a grant to to build a greenhouse. So, uh, Wildlife and Parks has been really generous to me, and uh, this has been a, an ideal situation that I've lucked into. If money was not an issue, what is one project that you would like to work on? Yes, the 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 one that's coming to mind is uh, e-migration of fish through our our reservoirs. Um, something that's kind of held held back from just we don't have the the capital to 
to buy a bunch of receivers and transmitters to to throw a bunch of stuff out there to really evaluate that. So uh, we have started doing it in, in one or two reservoirs, uh, but uh, we have a lot more reservoirs than that in Kansas, especially our big federal reservoirs. So uh, if money wasn't an issue, I, I suppose it would be installing a lot more receivers and a lot more of our reservoirs to to really nail down e-migration of fish out of our federal reservoir system. Okay. If there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I guess the, another one that I'm guilty of not exactly doing all the time, but I guess uh, my main point of principle, I believe I've said it in previous episodes, just to share your story. Um, we do a lot of cool stuff day to day uh, that uh, sometimes we we take for granted. So um, even if it's just uh, posting a picture of you out doing something in the field on your Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, with a short little caption, what you're doing, just just share your story. The the more the more we tell the world about what we do, the the more people know and the more people care when it comes time to to have their support for for bills and legislation. That's great, Nick. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure hearing about you and all of your work. And once again, congratulations on the podcast's recent achievements. Oh, thank you. It, it wouldn't have been possible without the the 14 other hosts that have that have come on the show, and I've. Uh, it's been a, a while now, but um, I'm now responsible for less than half of the episodes. So uh, it's not so much my show anymore, but uh, a collection of the other hosts uh, have been responsible for the uh, for the nearly 200,000 downloads that the show has gotten over those uh, 251 episodes and almost five and a half years. So um, I guess thank you to you and the other hosts for for keeping it going. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if people want to find out more information or to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Uh, I believe my social media is uh, consistent across all channels. It's Nick Deluris. Uh, so it's Nick and then Deluris, like uh, Channel Catfish and Blue Catfish. And then, uh, of course, you can find me, email me through the Fisheries Podcast or those social media channels. I'd, I'm still attached to all those, even though I don't host anymore. Okay. And if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find us on social media at Fisheries Pod or old-fashioned email feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts, hoodies, and stickers that are available on Teespring. I am Preston, and thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast, and remember, share your story. Mm -hmm.